Good evening, good evening, good evening. This is Angelus Morningstar, and this is Story Mode, the podcast for Storyboard. On this podcast, I cover board games, board game industry, and the community. There is a combination of reflections on games, as well as things that happen within the world around it. On tonight's episode, I have a couple of good segments for you. As usual, I have a segment on retail where I share an experience or an encounter or some kind of foible from my time working in a retail store. Following, I have an elevator pitch for Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective, after which I have no deep dive review, but I do have two chit encounters. One is for Blackout Hong Kong and the other is for Chronicles of Crime. And following the double take, I have two table topics for you. One is an overview of an incident that happened with Colossal Games and Maple Games regarding their shutdown of Kickstarter projects they were funding. And following that, I give an analysis of why I believe Blood on the Clock Tower's Kickstarter was intensely successful. A quick matter of housekeeping. You may note that today's episode was severely delayed by a couple of days, and that was due to a number of technical difficulties. But those seem to have been resolved now. Let's get to it. One of the things that can happen quite a lot in the retail store is people coming up and asking for a discount. Now, anyone in the industry knows that the margins on board games are quite small. It's really hard to turn a proper profit in the industry, except with maybe a few exceptional individuals. And generally, the scenario will just be a person coming up and asking, is there any discounts? And from a retail perspective, this is actually nonsensical. We don't want to hide the discounts. We want to make them obvious and accessible. We want to make it easy for you to know that this is something cheaper than what you'd normally pay for. So there's no system of hiding discounts in a similar manner we don't hide stock in the back of the store. It's a very interesting interaction. Now, that being said, staff can have some discretionary abilities depending on the store. Often board game stores being small businesses, there is a lot more leeway and discretion and oversight. If the staff know the value of the goods that they're dealing with, they should have a good idea as to what kind of discounts they can offer. But here's the big thing. A lot of it's going to come down to your rapport with that staff. To give you an idea, we had this person who came in and asked for a discount on a particular item. We gave a very minor discount, something like an item dropped from $20 to $15, which is 25% of its cost. That gentleman came back the next week and had the same expectation of that discount and got incredibly irate that we would not continue to offer him that same rate that we did the previous time. So from his perspective, we were trying to get away with an increased cost or something. I don't know. His response was quite irrational. And from our perspective, we were happy to do kind of a once-off discount just as a, you know, just as a discretionary decision. But if we were going to make that the standard cost, we would actually just advertise it as that. Very peculiar. But when I say it can come down to your rapport with the staff, as I said in my first podcast, I'm a human being. I have human feelings and interactions, despite all evidence to the contrary. As it turns out, if I have developed a good rapport with you, i.e. you've put some effort to interact with me and build up some kind of interaction, I'm going to be more of a mind to use my discretionary powers to give you a discount. Where I shut down is when I've 
the tone or the approach comes across entitled or expectant. And I'm not unsympathetic to the fact that board games can cost money, but when you come into my store and your approach is demanding of a reduction, you're going to see me dig my heels in. And I think you'll find that this approach is shared with a lot of retail stores. If you want to get a discount, put some work in yourself. You know, I have to put in work to solicit a sale from people I don't know. If you're wanting to get a better deal on that, put in some work with the staff there. Today's Elevator Pitch features Sherlock Holmes' Consulting Detective. In Consulting Detective, you are playing the Barker Street Irregulars, being the vagrants who used to work as informants for Sherlock Holmes. Your goal is to solve a case faster than Sherlock Holmes can. You aren't going to, but that's beside the point. The game consists of several cases. Each case is a booklet featuring a synopsis and a breakdown of the crime or mystery in question, along with several leads. The remainder of that book consists of something of a choose-your-own-adventure dynamic, where the book is broken down into a series of numbered paragraphs. Each of these counts as one potential lead. Some of them are false, some of them are useful, some of them are minor. Your goal is to solve the mystery using as few leads as possible. To determine which leads to inquire, some of them will be given to you in that brief of the crime, but others will be hidden throughout the mystery and as you explore. You might encounter references to certain people and you want to look them up in the directory. You might encounter places and you want to try and find them on the map. There is also a newspaper published on the day of the crime and inside it you will find various subtle clues littered within the text of the newspaper. When you're ready to solve the mystery, you flip the back of the book and answer a series of questions to see how well you understood the mystery. You gain a score based on how correct you are, and then typically a points deduction for the difference between the number of steps you took versus the shorter number of steps that Sherlock inevitably took. However, I strongly advise you to take a little bit of time to solve the mystery properly, as opposed to trying to rush through the mystery and solve it quickly. Today on Chit Encounters, I'm going to cover Blackout Hong Kong by Alexander Pfister and from Eget Spiel. In this game, you're playing a crack emergency services team in modern Hong Kong. There's been a citywide blackout for several days and there is no end in sight to the blackout and the restoration of power. One of the central mechanisms of blackout is a card management system where you're playing cards to a little display in front of you, and those cards will remain banked until such time as a trigger causes you to pick these up. The various cards will have a range of different effects on them, and you use these to leverage the other parts of the game's overall system. If you played Fister's earlier work, Mombasa, you'll probably notice a couple of elements that's been brought over from that game. That's not to say it's copying the mechanism, but there are enough similarities that they will draw comparison, I think. Your goal is ultimately to capture various districts. You are going to use the actions of the of the various cards to marshal a range of resources, and this will let you put cubes on the 
outskirts of each district. When you completely encompass a single district, you lock it down, capture it and secure it, and you get to put one of your houses down on it. This sort of gives you a bit of a boost and the number of houses you put down will influence your score at the very end of the game. So if I was to describe the game from a very top-down perspective, it is quite indicative of Fista's design. You can see a very big ob central objective planned out and the manipulation of lots of fine little small systems and it becomes a bit of a puzzle trying to think at least two steps ahead. So a lot of the elements of good Euro design, I can see lots of really good bits there. I found while the manipulations of the cards was a bit of an interesting puzzle, especially with the rondelle of dice, the attempt to claim resources and territories, there was no arc to that experience. So for me, the experience of capturing territory to territory to territory was one note. It was the same at the beginning, it was the same in the middle, and it was the same at the end. So I didn't find there was a kind of crescendo or peak to the experience. And because of that, it just felt like the game went on a lot longer than I think it should have, or at least that's what was the experience. You know, you're just getting close to the end game and I'm waiting for the game to finish, not I'm looking forward to that final peak of fulfilling my engine. I do think that this game has a bit of a pacing issue and I do think that this game actually lacks a kind of arc. I'm not feeling a climax to the game. That's what it is. There's no climax, there's no buildup, and there's no release. And I really need that from my games to get that absolute interest. And also, there's nothing inherently wrong with the game. I consider it a good game. But as I was playing it, I couldn't help but think of Mombasa. They're not identical, but they're similar enough that the experience that I might get from Blackout would be provided by Mombasa. And since I have Mombasa, I don't really feel a need to also have Blackout. So for me, this was a good game, but not one I'm going to keep. I had originally planned on doing a full deep dive review for Chronicles of Crime. However, at this juncture, I don't believe I've explored it sufficiently enough to give you a deep consideration of the game. But I have played it enough that I'm happy to synthesize my initial impressions. So rather than a deep dive review, I am offering another Chit Encounters. Chronicles of Crime is a mystery solving game. The game is divided into several scenarios often linked together. As you play, you uncover deeper parts of a mystery with each successive scenario. Mechanically speaking, there's actually not a lot of moving parts to this game. Most of it consists of various cards or placemats or, or objects. And mostly you will spend your time using your phone and an app you download on the phone to scan the various objects with QR codes. This represents you interacting with these objects, places, and things. There will be times where you are given a scene to explore and the app will open up a visual panorama and you can sort of scan around looking for objects. As you do that, you can identify particular categories of objects and sort of bring them out to scan. Through this process, you're going to be gathering information and you use this over the course of the game to try to solve the mystery. One of the catches though is everything you do costs time. Usually a single action is roughly five minutes of time. And there are certain things that will change as time wears on in the game. In one of the episodes, you will have people in different places when it's night as opposed to 
day and you need to be aware of that. There are certain timed events, so people needing rescue by a certain amount of time or payments to be done. And there's all sorts of interactions. So a lot of these things really bring it to life. So as a game experience and as a mystery solving experience, I really liked it. There was a lot going on here that I found quite enjoyable. The mysteries themselves were challenging and there was one or two I had to redo to fully understand them. The way the game time works as a limiter and the way that the card options were general enough to be very large catch-alls meant you couldn't really brute force your way to a solution without running out of time. So there's skill in observation, there's skill in making sufficient inferences about the information you come across, and there's skill in time management. So as a game, you know, I thought, it, I think it's a really good experience. If you're expecting a however, well, here it is. Lucky Duck Games, their mentality and their ethos is about translating computer game experiences into the board game format. Now, this game is entirely dependent on an app. You cannot play it without the app. You are scanning cards and the scenes that you're investigating are actually put onto the screen of your phone. I actually found it was to the point where the physical cards felt more like an externalized prop to the computer game rather than the app being a support to a tabletop game. And by design, Chronicles of Crime is meant to draw large inspiration from the classic point and click adventure games. I grew up on LucasArts and Sierra games. Ah, there was a point in my youth where I could recite the steps to complete one or more, particularly King's Quest III. That's how fascinated I was by this genre. When I played this game, I do capture a little bit of that sense of nostalgia, but it feels unnecessary. It feels like this should have just been a computer game. It would have taken very little effort to have digitized all these cards and make it made it a completely digital experience. And while I appreciate there is a, an intent to make it a physical copy, I'm not sure my experience was added to from that. I don't think I would have enjoyed it any less had it just been all digital cards and entirely a digital experience. Part of my position on that is probably informed by the fact I played it entirely solo. So there was no other human interaction. But a game like this is ultimately either a solo player experience or a group think exercise, much like Sherlock Holmes and much like Detective. There is nothing necessarily added by multiple players except the social aspect and the discussion. My concerns are magnified because I'm using the app or the app is more relevant than the physical components. I usually find my reservations around app use are marginal, the less centered the experience is on the app. Whereas in this case, the experience revolves around the app. In almost every circumstance, the physical objects are just props to the app experience. So as a game, I really like it. As a board game, I'm not sold, to be honest. I'll probably still play it and I'll probably still enjoy it, but there's still just going to be that part of me that's that feels like, why am I doing all this physical administration of bringing out, of bringing out cards, of managing the table, when all of this would be done much more efficiently and with less cost in some ways, if it was just a digital object. And I think my position does provoke some interesting questions around where, if any, kind of line exists between tabletop gaming and computer gaming. And ultimately, I think that comes down to what we want to get out of our experiences. So don't take my reaction to this as though I'm saying Chronicles of Crime should not exist as a board game. You know, it's different. 
there aren't a lot of games that offer what this does. And I think for me, just because I have such a deeply entrenched nostalgia and history with point and click adventure games, I feel like the game is making a promise to me that will not live up to those expectations. On 16th of April, Maple Games dismissed its founder and president, Daryl Andrews. He, having co-founded the company in 2018 along with Peter Walken, will go forth retaining the title of founder for Maple Games. This decision sent a shockwave throughout the game design community, especially among the game artisans of Canada, as it seemed to come out of nowhere. Shortly after, on the 19th of April, Kickstarter announced a suspension of two live campaigns, Hunt the Ravager from Colossal Games and Folding Space from Maple Games. Both projects launched within a week of each other. The following day, Kickstarter suspended the completed campaign of Papillion, also by Colossal Games, and refunded all of the pledges. This set an unusual precedent of Kickstarter ending a campaign after the conclusion of the campaign, but before the release of the funds. This represented a loss of revenue of 87,000 US dollars. These decisions caught the Kickstarter community, both its consumers and its publishers, in a state of shock and uncertainty, especially with the revelation of a suspension for a concluded campaign. In the time following the suspension, the Kickstarter's integrity team issued a formal statement citing several of the following as reasons for the suspension, but without going into specifics. One, outstanding fulfillment issues related to a previously successful crowdfunding campaign. Two, running multiple simultaneous projects. Three, failure or unwillingness to clearly communicate with backers. Under the terms and agreements of Kickstarter, Kickstarter retains the right to suspend any campaign at any time after launch. Typically, these suspensions are permanent. At the time of suspension, Colossal Games, operating under two different Kickstarter accounts, Colossal Games and Colossum Myco, had funded up to 14 projects since joining Kickstarter in 2017. At the time of the suspension, five projects by Colossal Games were under various stages of production and fulfillment. Similarly, Maple Games funded three projects since joining in June of 2018, including Folding Space. Their two previous projects were funded, but were still in the process of being fulfilled at the time of the suspension. One of the elements that is considered to have muddied the waters in this instance is a number of managerial connections between the two companies. Both companies enjoy the financial backing of a few common individuals. Arnaud Charpentier of Madago Games lists the position of CEO of Colossal Games on his LinkedIn profile and is otherwise regarded as a financial backer of Maple Games. Likewise, Tangai Vincent Serra is listed as a director of Maple Games and chairman to Colossal Games. The speculation is that the interlinks between these two companies and their backers meant Kickstarter regarded them as a single entity for the purposes of their terms and agreements. No official statements from Maple Games have linked these events to the dismissal of Andrews as president, but actions like these may be a response to help decouple the two companies a little more clearly. Industry figures still took this news with a level of anxious uncertainty. There are numerous publishers and post-campaign production companies that rely upon revenue from multiple campaigns across the year. Should the rule be strictly enforced, the reality of turnaround time from funding to fulfillment might realistically contract the number of games a major publisher can issue through Kickstarter down to one or two a year. In light of this uncertainty, 
especially given the amount of labor that goes into supporting a campaign, discussions began to develop among publishers, some small, some large, about the feasibility of competitors to Kickstarter as an alternate funding platform. There was some sounding out about the viability of a platform specifically for and focused on the funding of board games and managed or issued by publishers. Nevertheless, the question remains on how successful such a transition could be given the niche focus of any such platform and the lack of recognizable branding in comparison to Kickstarter itself. That Kickstarter took these actions was regarded as out of the ordinary, especially because funding for games represents a full quarter of the revenue raised through Kickstarter, being over 1 billion US dollars, and games themselves hold the most number of successful campaigns in the funding brackets of over 10,000 US dollars. Tabletop gaming also consists of one of the most reliably fulfilled categories to the point where it is part of industry practice. Now, nearly a month later, Colossal Games have confirmed that the suspension was due to the breach of the terms and agreements cited, specifically the issue of multiple campaigns at once. Fortunately for Colossal, Papillion will be relaunched and represents an example of a campaign allowed to resurrect after suspension, which as I mentioned before, are typically permanent. The speculation is that certain staff within Kickstarter were overzealous in their approach of this cluster of entities. This instance is regarded as exceptional treatment in light of the continuing practice of Simon and other companies to have multiple campaigns in various states of production at any one time. Kickstarter have not sought to clarify the matter further and have given no further outlines on their terms and agreement. This leaves a number of larger companies in a new area of uncertainty, as there is now a measure of liability on their part should they continue to pursue multiple campaigns at once. While this is obviously a problem for publishers, it isn't necessarily one that is incumbent upon Kickstarter. Instead, it represents merely a risk of doing business with Kickstarter, and so broadly, it defaults back to a risk management strategy on the part of the publisher. A little over a month ago, Blood and the Clock Tower concluded their Kickstarter campaign, which I saluted in my very first podcast episode. It represents the most successful Australian board game Kickstarter in its history, having raised over half a million dollars US in that period. In the year before the campaign, the publishers behind Clock Tower approached me for some consultation advice as to how to approach one of the big notes that I gave them and I believe contributed strongly to their success was my note on them needing to go to conventions. Given that this campaign was run by a group of people who were not really known to the industry at the time, half a million US dollars represents an unmitigated success. I believe they did three key things that represents their success. They created an audience, they created a community, and they created a team dynamic. Long before they took this game to Kickstarter, they put in effort to build their audience before it went to Kickstarter, rather than relying upon Kickstarter to find their audience. They spent nearly over two years attending various major conventions, exposing their games, networking with industry, and even though they intended to publish themselves, they put in effort to be recognized both by their peers in the industry, as well as the people they were hoping to market it to. In creating community, they built around themselves a cluster of truth faithfuls in Sydney, people who were regular players of the games and ardent fans. And that created a local 
grassroots base of enthusiasm, which helped create organic content marketing and really good feedback and playtest. More importantly, it provided a wellspring of energy that they were able to tap into when it came to undertaking their campaign. The third thing they did was created a team dynamic. There was a group of people they had very clear roles and rosters of timeframes when they'd be available, particularly important since they were normally awake when the US was asleep and vice versa. And so they had to ensure that there were people awake to respond to stuff online. They provided a day one launch party to both celebrate the launch of their campaign, which was anticipated by many in their community, and also to capitalize on that cultivated following. If you consider that remoteness from the North American and European markets, this helped create a bridge to those. Now, admittedly, reviews like those from Shut Up and Sit Down helped generate massive publicity for them during the campaign, but none of that would have happened had they not actually made the effort to network and put in that groundwork. So again, I believe the three things that they did that led to their success was creating an audience, creating a community, and creating a team. that's all we have time for today. I'm just going to do a quick wrap up as it's already past midnight. Thank you for tuning in and listening into my podcast. I hope to see you next week as we look forward to the Spiel nominees and my preparations for Origins and UKGE. If you'd like to support me, there are multiple ways you can do so. Please share this on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever is your poison. If you actually want to throw money at me, I have a Patreon All of this you can find on my website, storyboardgamer.com. And good night.